Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how in every season of life it has something that we need desperately to hear. Whether we are children just old enough to begin uh, to have the beginnings of understanding or if we are running the last leg of our race through this life, your word speaks to us, it instructs us, and it holds forth before us the grace of our Savior Jesus. This morning, would you speak through your word? Would we hear the words of Jesus for us, of the extravagant grace we are to show to others, since we have received such grace from him? We pray these things in his mighty name. Amen. Uh, back in April of 2020, our church officially became a self-governing independent church, took on the name Castleton Community Church shortly after. Uh, one of the steps leading up to that, though, was deciding what would be the most near and dear values that we as a congregation held together. Our leadership team, our elders, and our staff uh, worked through an exercise to develop what we call core values. Uh, you can find them. There are six of them. Um, in the next steps area after the service, they're on the wall. Now, those aren't just decorations up there, though. Uh, we thought before the Lord that these were the most important things that needed to mark us as a church. Uh, one of the core values that I find myself as a pastor having used repeatedly, the most of all of them, is the one that goes by the name extravagant grace. Let me read a small portion of that for you. It says, as undeserving sinners saved by grace, we desire to be a congregation known for joyfully blessing, blessing others with the grace that God has lavished upon us. We seek to demonstrate this by exercising patient and forbearing spirit, forgiving as God has forgiven us, and extravagantly giving of ourselves and our resources to those God has appointed us to serve. Uh, I love the beautiful, simple, yet profound logic of that core value. Since we have so richly received grace from God, even extravagantly received grace from Him, we in turn give that same extravagant grace to others. Now, I wish I could claim that that was some brilliant idea that we as a leadership team came up with, but it turns out we were basically saying the same thing Jesus says in this passage. If you are someone that receives extravagant grace, then you have to show extravagant grace. Uh, we are in a section of the, what's called the Sermon on the Plain, a sermon Jesus preached about 2,000 years ago to an assembled group of his disciples, uh, teaching them how heaven thought of them and how they were to be different from the world around them as citizens of heaven. Jesus has been getting right to the heart of the matter his disciples are to be different from the world because of their love, a transcendent love from God above, a love even for their enemies. Uh, this morning, there's a slight shift now that he's going to make. Uh, no longer is the focus going to be just on love, but on grace, on the way that we treat others, which is to be a measure of the way that we expect God to treat us on the final day. Uh, this morning, as we study these two verses from Jesus together, I hope you'll come away convinced that those 
who experience extravagant grace must show extravagant grace to others. Those who experience extravagant grace must show extravagant grace to others. We'll see that in two sections, one for each of the verses. Uh, first, in verse 37, we'll see gracious acceptance and forbearance. Gracious acceptance and forbearance. And then in verse 38, extravagant giving and forgiving. Extravagant giving and forgiving. In all of this, those who receive extravagant grace in turn show it to others. Let's begin that first section. Gracious acceptance and forgiveness. Verse 37, at least the first part of it, is probably the most famous verse in the Bible in the day we live. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Uh, it's a wonderfully simple formula that Jesus uses for the first two commands he gives. Don't do this one thing, and God will avoid doing this other thing to you. Don't judge, don't condemn, and you will not be judged and condemned on the final day. Now, as popular as that phrase is, even to people who know nothing about the Bible, it's widely misunderstood. Uh, back years ago, when I was doing lots of campus evangelism in South Florida, I would often have this verse thrown in my face as a sort of conversation stopper the second I started talking about Jesus or the Bible. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, evangelical Christian guy, don't you dare tell me God has anything to say about my life or my sin, because judge not, lest you be judged. Now, that may be an effective rhetorical trick that stops a number of Christians in their tracks, but it's not a serious way to study the Bible or even to try and understand who Jesus was or what he talk, talked about. Uh, just two verses before, remember, Jesus described a group of people as evil and ungrateful, uh, those sound like pretty stark moral judgments to me that Jesus was making. Uh, and if you take the full teaching of Jesus found in the four Gospels, in fact, he explicitly tells his disciples to judge with just judgment. And in another place, he tells them in Matthew 18 that they need to even exclude people from the church, uh, what we call church discipline, as an effort to rebuke them into repentance. So if you want to be serious about the teachings of Jesus, you can't assume that judge not means make no moral judgments whatsoever. So what does it mean? I think the best way to understand it is a prohibition against what we'll call judgmentalism. Uh, judgmentalism, I'll give you a definition for it. It is the tendency to perceive sin in others quickly and then to respond harshly without any care for their good. To be able to spot the sin in others a mile away and immediately put them in your crosshairs. And before you have a chance to even find out if your assumptions about it are true, you start lobbing fire downfield at them without any care what happens as a result. Uh, let's realize in the day and age we live, Judgmentalism is actually the spirit of the age. Ten years ago, people generally on college campuses thought, live and let live. Leave me alone, I'll live my life, you live your life. But today it's very different, have you noticed? 
Uh, today, there is an enforced sort of virtue. Be on the right side of history or on the right side of this social cause or else you'll be canceled, vilified, and on the outside with no hope of redemption. Well, in a culture that is so quick to pass judgment and even punishment upon others for their perceived faults, Jesus' words are so wonderfully countercultural. Judge not, lest you be judged. Those two first commands Jesus gives are, are both courtroom language. Judge not, condemn not. Uh, the courtroom Jesus is talking about, though, is not one of a civil government, though. It's the courtroom of our hearts. How we become judge, jury, and executioner for people that cross us or don't live up to our perceived standards. Uh, notice Jesus is deadly serious about the consequences of judgmentalism. Those who judge will find God one day to be their judge. Those who condemn will find God one day to condemn them. As serious as that is, we can't assume this is teaching some sort of salvation by being accepting and patient. Uh, you don't earn salvation from God just by being kind and loving enough. And yet, it is true. If you have truly found shelter from the wrath of God and his judgment, if you know what it is to be someone who is saved, then you will turn around and show that same grace to others as well. So Jesus teaches us, judge not, lest you be judged. Well, let's get granular with this. What is judgmentalism practically mean and how can we fight against it as believers living in Indianapolis 2,000 years after Jesus said it. Let me give you three lines of application for how you can notice judgmentalism and how you can fight it in your own heart. Uh, the first is beware of the speed of judgmentalism. Your heart loves to take some perceived offense against you or someone else and immediately bring a measure of justice by condemning them before you have time to even verify what the things you've read or heard or seen are true. Have you ever had this happen? Maybe you're going through a social media feed or searching a news site and all you see is that little headline to an article of some sort, maybe it's some provocative thing that some famous person said. And just by reading those dozen words or so, you immediately in your heart say, how in the world could that person have said that? Wow, they are off base, empty headed, unloving, unkind. Where do they get off saying something like that? Now your heart in the speed to bring about justice hasn't even bothered to click the link and read the whole article. It's just looking at the lead. Uh, we do the same thing with people in our lives, don't we? Consider what would happen if you saw a photo of a group of your friends at your favorite restaurant with one, noticeable, one notable admission. You are not there. Might you immediately begin thinking, oh, why didn't they invite me? Oh, I bet they did that on purpose. Oh, I, I, bet, I bet it was Rob. I knew I shouldn't have trusted him. 
how quick we are to jump to ungracious assumptions about people. Before we even had the chance to check the facts, we act as judge, jury, and executioner, and they are condemned in our hearts. But just a dose of patience goes so, so far. If we just slow down, take time to have a clarifying conversation, uh, maybe even be willing to forbear for a time, even if there is a real offense. Turns out many of these things aren't nearly as big a deal as we thought. Certainly, if you think about the fact that God has been patient to you in your sins, should lead you to be patient to others, shouldn't it? Uh, beware of the speed of judgmentalism. Also, beware of the way judgmentalism is overly sure of opinions. We all have opinions, unavoidable. But none of us are experts in everything. But have you noticed how when you feel strongly about something, how easy it is to begin to treat it as if it is transcendental truth revealed in Scripture instead of just something that you think might be true? Uh, when that happens, it's much easier to start making comments about people or making conclusions about them. Uh, because I feel so strongly about this thing, anyone that disagrees about with me must be themselves sinfully wrong. Yet if we were to learn proper proportions of the difference between the truth revealed in the Bible, things that are clear and necessary and even our opinions, we'd be far more gracious and accepting to people even when they disagree with us. I've been reading a biography of the life of uh, missionary Eric Little. Uh, you may know him as the runner who famously would not run on Sunday in the Olympics, having to forego the very event he had spent so many months training and qualifying for because of his convictions about the Sabbath. Uh, Little was a rock when it came to that conviction. No amount of pressure or guilt or shame would uh, cause him to move off of it and go against his conscience. Now, you might think a guy that holds so firmly to conviction like that might be a little harsh toward people that didn't hold that same conviction. But little was the exact opposite. Uh, even when reporters tried to get him to badmouth the other runners that would run on Sunday, he refused to do it. And in fact, he was very gracious toward them. He, he wished them well. He said he hoped that their training would pay off and they'd run a good race. Now, all that acceptance and grace, it paid off for, for Little. Uh, in his ministry life, he got a reputation for being someone that was easily approachable. And that meant he was able to win many people to Christ, all because he was extravagant in his acceptance and grace. What would it be like if we were that way over our opinions? Whether it be... Uh, what school our kids should go to, or what type of job we should have, and how many hours we should work. If we were much slower to come to conclusions about how wrong people are, and how empty-headed they might be, and much quicker to give them the benefit of the doubt. The third mark of judgmentalism I want to warn you against, and that is harshness. See, the judgmental heart doesn't really care for the people that it is denouncing. It just wants to destroy them in their position. 
It doesn't care how its words are received or what result they bring about in that person's life. All it cares about is being right and the good feeling that comes from getting those words off your chest. How easy is it in a moment of anger, even when we feel like we're justified, to say things that absolutely level people and in the process close them off to hearing anything about Jesus from us? Uh, but Jesus is, what, didn't model that in his own life, did he? He said plenty of really pointed, prophetic things. And yet Jesus was approachable and gentle. Someone that even the worst of sinners knew they could draw close to and find grace from God. Uh, what would it be like if our church were filled with people that were gracious in their words, gentle, and used only the words that were necessary so that someone could understand the grace that could be found in Jesus that we found. I love the story of uh, Christian author Rosaria Butterfield. She was a practicing uh, person of the LGBTQ community, uh, on the front end of scholarship in that community, in fact. Uh, she came across a quote from a very well-known TV evangelist that was, at best, you could describe as uncharitable and harsh in the way it talked about people like her. Uh, as a result, she expected that is how all Christians would treat her. But one day, she decided to go on a bit of a research project to find out some more about Christians. And to her surprise, a local pastor wrote her a note with words that weren't filled with venom, but with salt. It was from uh, Pastor Ken Smith. He was extremely gracious and kind to her. He, he didn't condemn her. He just asked her probing questions and invited her to come have a conversation. Well, over the months that followed, they developed a friendship along with uh, Pastor Smith's wife. And in due time, Rosaria Butterfield came to know Christ. Uh, she wrote this of the way that the Smiths loved her and approached her. She said, one thing that made Ken safe as well as dangerous was a point of commonality between us. We both are good teachers. Good teachers make it possible for people to change their positions without shame. Even as Ken prayed for my soul, he did it in a way that welcomed me into the church rather than made me a scapegoat of Christian fear or an example of what not to become. I wonder if someone walks into our church, no matter what background they may come from, no matter how sharp the level of disagreement they ha might have with what a good life is to live, what would they say about the people that gather Sunday after Sunday here at Castleton Community Church? Would they find a people that are patient and accepting and quick to love? Would they find a people that eagerly want to lead them to know and trust Jesus? Or would they find the caricature of what Christians are like these days? People quick to judge, quick to condemn, no matter the consequences. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord remind us that if we have received extravagant grace, then we are to extend it to others as well. And the words of Jesus here are very pointed, in fact. 
Uh, the way it's written, if we find ourselves consistently judging and condemning others, we should have no expectation that one day God would avoid judging and condemning us. May we have some soul searching to do. In the way words come out of our mouths and the way people experience extravagant grace from us. I'm thankful that as I've uh, heard enough stories about our church, I, I don't think we live up to the caricature about Christians these days. And yet I know there's always more room for us to grow. Uh, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, I don't know how other Christians have treated you, uh, maybe even Christians in this church. Uh, I want you to know that the God that we serve calls us to love you and show you grace. Uh, the best way we know how to do that is to help you to understand what Jesus taught and what the Bible he left us tells us about how one day we can avoid the judgment of God. You see, the message of the Bible is not that we're okay on our own, but far from it, that all of us would be condemned if we stood before God on our own merits. The Bible calls us sinners, and it says that we need to repent and find forgiveness through the man Jesus Christ that was sent to pay the penalty for our sins. Uh, that doesn't mean that Christians should be judgmental toward you, but it does mean that we have a responsibility to try and help you to find the same grace that we've received, to come and know Jesus and know that we'll never be objects of the judgment of God. Now, if you don't know much more about Jesus than what you've just heard, uh, please, I, I hope you feel like you can come back here next Sunday and hear a little bit more about what, what the Bible teaches and about this Jesus. But know that he is not a man that is quick to condemn and judge, even as he one day will judge all of us. He's full of compassion and extravagant grace. If you'll take the time to get to know him, you'll find that to be true in your life. Jesus has some challenging words for us here this morning, but they get even more challenging with the second point. Not just gracious acceptance and forbearance, but extravagant giving and forgiving in verse 38. It's actually the first half, second half of verse 37. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Uh, did you notice how Jesus flipped the formula here? No longer is it the negative, avoid doing this, and God will avoid doing this. Now it is the positive, do this. And God, in turn, will do this. Again, that's not salvation by works. Uh, but it is true that those who have been forgiven will forgive and will one day see that God has finally forgiven them on the last day. Uh, Jesus, again, returns to this topic of forgiveness. And I, I hope you've noticed how prominent this theme has been in his teaching over these last three weeks. It's a hard, hard thing to be called to forgive as an expression of love to your enemies. And yet Jesus is consistent in calling his disciples to follow his example in this very thing, to cancel our debt of condemnation in our hearts and to forgive even when people are evil toward us. 
Uh, maybe over this three weeks you've found yourself, as we've heard again and again of the need to forgive, thinking of one or a group of people in particular, that there's a sense of bitterness in your heart toward them for something they've done to you. Uh, when you hear Jesus' words, if you expect to be forgiven on the final day, then you must forgive now. A Christian that doesn't forgive is not a true Christian. Release the debt that you're holding on to in your heart and find the joy of, of forgiveness. When we see that forgiveness at work in this world, it's a powerful, powerful apologetic, isn't it? It, it tells us something of God that the world really can't make sense of. Did you see the headlines a little while ago with that 18-year-old named Shelby Houston? Her father was a police officer. He went to break up a domestic dispute, and in the process of getting himself in the middle to play referee, the husband pulled out a gun and shot him dead. After he did that, the husband tried to kill himself, only he didn't succeed. Survived a self-inflicted gunshot, laid up in the hospital. Now, the horrible, that's a horrible story at one level, but it's a remarkable one at another. Because the daughter of that police officer at his funeral got up and gave us an example of extravagant grace and forgiveness. Uh, she said that over the years she had heard about so many people that had killed uh, innocents and the rightful anger people felt toward them desiring justice. And yet there was a part of her that always wanted to reach out to the perpetrators knowing that they too were in need of the forgiveness found in Christ. She said that people used to tell her, well, you would feel differently if one day it was your family member that was wrongfully killed. At the funeral, she said this, not that I don't think there should be justice served, but my heart always ached for those who didn't know Jesus, their actions being a reflection of that. I was always told I would feel differently if it happened to me, but as it happened to my own father, I think I still feel the same. There has been anger, grief, sadness, and confusion. And a part of me just wishes I could despise the man who did this to my father. But I can't give any part of my heart to hate him. My prayer is that someday down the road, I get the time to spend with the man who shot my father. Not to scream at him. Not to yell at him. Not to scold him, but simply to tell him about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you expect to be forgiven on the final day, you must forgive. Whoever the Lord has placed on your heart, would you cancel their debt? Would you release them of the pain that they've inflicted upon you? And would you remember that the forgiven forgive because they have received extravagant grace? And we'll surely receive it on the final day as well. Jesus calls us to forgive. He also calls us to give. Notice that last one. Give and it will be given to you. He immediately follows it up with an illustration from the ancient world of the marketplace. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will it be put into your lap. Uh, back in the ancient world, if you were buying grain, 
You probably didn't trust the person you were buying it from. People had a way of finding little ways to cut corners back from the earliest ages of humanity. Uh, so as a result, an honest merchant would do a sort of ritual in front of you. Uh, let's say you were buying a quart of flour, whatever size it was. They would fill it up with the grain to the top, and then they would begin whacking it and packing it and drilling holes in it and putting more and more grain on it until that container, that measure, was filled all the way to the top, and there was not even an inch more in it. As a result, you know, knew you were getting your money's worth, the full measure of grain you paid for. In fact, even sometimes they would sprinkle a little on top, running over, so that you knew that you got the better end of the deal. Uh, Jesus says that we are to give in such a way, we are to give so extravagantly, it's like that full measure and then some running over. It's like when you go through uh, five guys, and they give you the extra scoop of fries on top of the ones in the container. That's the sort of grace we're supposed to lavish on people. Now, notice what Jesus says at the end. There's a principle there. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. If you're extravagantly generous, then you'll receive the same on the final day. But if your heart is stingy, uh, stingy in your time and your treasure and your talents, uh, stingy in the way you love others, then don't you expect God to be generous to you on the last day? What Jesus is describing here is the overflow of a heart that has been made glad by extravagant grace. It turns around and gives the same grace to others. Now, you can give in so many ways. I'm so thankful for the generosity of our congregation with our the finances the Lord has given us, our, our church has never had a time of want in its history. Thank you for that. That is a, a mark of God's grace at work among us. Uh, I hope you have that same attitude, not just with the money you give, but how you apportion your time. Remember years ago, I was helping a friend move and I found myself grumbling and complaining when he was not quite as ready for the move as I had hoped. There were things scattered all over the house. He needed help getting boxes and bags and even the truck itself. I was watching the hours of my day tick away, getting more and more upset as time went along. At some point, the Lord convicted me what was going on, though. I was being stingy with my time. That's not the way Christ has treated me, is it? He always has time for me. He'll spend eternity with me. And here I am grumbling about a lost afternoon. Uh, maybe it's not your time. Uh, maybe it's your emotional capacity in relationships. You find yourself being a little stingy. Uh, not feeling like you have the emotional energy to let another person close. Uh, would you remember all that you have received? More than the measure than you could ever give. You can never outgive God. And one day you will receive far more than anything that you pour out in this life. Would you be generous with the resources the Lord has given you, knowing He will pay back 
Now, please, we need to make sure we understand this is not teaching what's called the prosperity gospel. Uh, that is that if you want a, a bigger check coming in each month or a nicer ride, then you just need to start the mathematical equation by first giving some, and then God will, in a very crude way, give you back more than you gave. Now, it's true. Many times, God does give us material things in this world as an expression of his love and concern for his people. Uh, we're right to recognize that. But far more often, the extravagant grace that we look forward to comes on the day when we are with Jesus himself. On the day when our inheritance is not in the things of this world, but our inheritance is in the kingdom of God, of an, an eternal city, and of riches that never perish. So we have open hands and are quick to give of all the resources God's given us in this world, knowing that surely what we will get back far outweighs anything we could give away. I wonder where you find yourself a little bit on the stingy side in your own life. Before the Lord, resolve to treat others the way you've been treated. Uh, bring yourself back to the cross and remember how all the spiritual riches of heaven were given to you as an act of grace. And see if you might find yourself a little more generous to others as well. Oh, brothers and sisters, it is a joy to live out this ethic of Jesus. It's not natural. It's not something that our flesh does on its own. And yet if we are citizens of heaven with the Spirit of God indwelling us, these things will surely be seen in us, and increasingly so, so the world knows about the God we serve, of our Lord Jesus full of extravagant grace towards sinners that haven't deserved an ounce of it from him. Don't you want to live a life like that? Ask yourself this question. If I were to send out a survey to all the people in your life, if I were to ask them, what are you like? What words would they use to describe you? Uh, would it be that you are accepting and forbearing? Uh, that you are forgiving and giving? That you are gracious? The type of person that they don't quite know how you ended up on this earth, but they're glad you're here. Or would they say that you're judgmental and condemning, stingy, and unforgiving. Uh, before the Lord, we need to ask ourselves, uh, are we seeing the things Jesus says we ought to see in our lives? And when we don't see them, we need to find our way back to the cross for fresh forgiveness and, yes, a fresh dose of that extravagant grace so that we can give of the overflow of what we've already received and that what we are sure to receive on that final day when our Lord Jesus returns and all our giving and forgiving and forbearance and patience is shown to be just a tiny measure of what we will receive from him. Uh, I love the story of Francis and Edith Fr uh, Schaefer. He was a pastor for 10 years here in the United States before the Lord moved them to go be missionaries over in Switzerland. They had the purest of intentions to give them themselves and their family, to win people for Christ, 
in a quaint mountain village up in the Swiss Alps. Only it didn't go the way they had planned. After their first furlough, when they came back to their home, they had found they'd been evicted. The people had rejected the message of the gospel and told them to take a hike. Now, you might imagine that if you had been so rebuffed in such a crass way, that your heart might become hard. That you might pass judgment on the people that didn't want to hear from you anymore. But not the Schaefers. Instead, they decided to just move across the valley to the mountainside right across and to open up a new type of ministry, a place called Labrie. It was a home that used hospitality and accepting conversations to introduce people to Jesus and the gospel. Uh, it, over the years, got a reputation as a place that seekers of all types could go. It was back in the time when college students were backpacking through Europe and experimenting with all sorts of philosophies and teachings without ever advertising or ever asking anyone for money, the Schaefers found a steady stream of seekers coming into their home. Oh, it cost them. Uh, they never had all that much money. Uh, and in fact, the few earthly possessions they had got used up in their hospitality. Even their wedding gifts were ruined by students with less than wonderful manners inside their house. And yet they were always generous with what they had, with their resources and their time, and most of all, with the gospel of Jesus. Uh, I watched a documentary this week about the Schaefers, and one particular story jumped out. Uh, it was a man who had traveled from the United States. He had been um, mistreated greatly. He was an African-American that had grown up before the civil rights movement. And as a result, he had seen and experienced some pretty awful things. He started wrestling with questions of how a good God could ever let things like that happen. He said when he met Francis Schaeffer, though, he was struck by how generous he was with his time and how loving he was in answering questions and introducing him to the God of love that he served. Francis Schaeffer had a saying that the final apologetic for the Christian is love. I don't know of a better way to sum up extravagant grace than that. Uh, dear brothers and sisters, those who experience extravagant grace, show it to others. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we know the measure that we use is so often less than half full, that we are stingy in our forgiveness and giving. And often we are quick to condemn and to judge and slow to bless and build up. Uh, Jesus, would you forgive us for that? Uh, would you remind us that there is a limitless store of your extravagant grace? That right now we can again find our hearts filled with that grace. And that one day when you return, that extravagant grace will overwhelm us for all eternity. Uh, would you change us by your spirit so that we might be people that show extravagant grace to others? 
might they wonder what sort of Lord and Master and God must these people serve as they watch the way we love them. Now as we turn to you in singing, Jesus, would you remind us everything we have comes from you. Fill our hearts with gratitude and grace. We pray in your name. Amen.